This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb Credit. Heritage Radio Network listeners can learn more about the power of community capital by visiting honeycombcredit.com HRN. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. This is the first episode, the first episode of our summer season. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch, and I'm really excited to, to introduce you to our guest for this week. Uh, she has a new book out, which I just finished a few days ago, and so I, I have a lot of questions. Um, Anne Armbrecht is the director of the Sustainable Herbs Program, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, so uh, let's just dive right in. Tell us about the book. What, uh, what's it called? What's it about? And, and how did you come to write it? It's called The Business of Botanicals. Not necessarily my first choice, but the second part is Exploring the Healing Promise of Plant Medicines in a Global Industry. So I came to write it because I'm an anthropologist. And as an anthropologist, then I came to herbal medicine and sort of various things I can talk about more if you want. But for now, as I learned more about herbal medicine and the herbal supply chain, what struck me was that there was a lot of talk about food and where food came from. And there wasn't that same conversation around botanicals and even herbal tea, but dietary supplements, none of that. People weren't asking the same questions. And so with my husband, we produced a documentary sort of celebrating the the, the values of traditional Western herbalism. And when we screen, when we showed that to people, what struck me was people in the audience who had studied herbal medicine either got it and they're like, yes, you're telling our story, or they maybe shopped at an organic at the farmer's market. They only fed their kids organic food, but it never occurred to them that herbal medicine was something that they could grow or that they could buy at a farmer's market or that it mattered where it came from. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a story I know well in the spice trade where, you know, people cook with spices all the time, obviously, without really thinking about or realizing that there is a whole very complex supply chain and agricultural supply chain behind, behind this ingredient in particular. Um, could you, would you just sort of illustrate a little bit about how uh, herbs or medicinal herbs fit into the bigger picture of, of food or supermarkets or, I mean, how are people buying uh, medicinal herbs and and how is it similar or different to the way that they're buying other ingredients, uh, culinary ingredients? Yeah, that's like a simple question with a complicated answer. <laughs> but, um, it's so you know it, there are different ways that we encounter herbal products. First is like in herbal teas and you know celestial seasonings, you know lemon zinger tea or that that's the first way, um, and and that's in every grocery store. And then a step further is, you know, when echinacea, I remember in the 1980s and echinacea suddenly kind of everybody was taking echinacea. So in those ways, people or elderberry or the whole conversation now around how to support your immune system. That's another place people encounter. And maybe and that can be anywhere from like whole food supplement aisle to um, Rite Aid or Walmart. And then now there's a huge online market for, again, everything from really high quality, really invested in the supply chain to cheapest 
raw materials you can get. It's very similar to the spice spaces. Yeah. And you write a lot in the book about your own journey through herbalism, your early education, uh, also obviously connected to your degree in anthropology. But but what was it that uh, kind of propelled you to 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 write this book now, or what what was the is is there yeah I guess what was going on? How did you decide to do it now? So kind of a longish answer, but the well, we we have a lot we have a long time to talk, so so <laughs> feel, feel free to tell to tell us the whole story. <laughs> Um, I did my research in Nepal in Eastern Nepal and, you know, I had a lot of romantic ideas about indigenous ways of knowing and traditional farming systems and all of that, that were quite naive, you know, but what I did encounter, you know, I realized it's quite hard to live in a remote village in the Himalayas, but what I did encounter was this quality of the villagers relationship with the environment, you know, men, women, young, you know, and it was a sense of respect and restraint. It wasn't just a set of resources to exploit. And to me, that felt this kernel of wisdom. And when I came back to the U.S. to finish my doctorate, and one was struck on a superficial level by the absence of that in the United States, but in herbal medicine, I went to an herb conference and there I encountered that quality like a cultural framework for our encounter with the natural world that I found like, like this is the answer. And then as I, and that's why we did that film. But then as I learned more, you know, the industry is just like any other industry and plants are commodities bought and sold like any other commodity. But I thought if any industry can have a promise for capitalism as a way to change the world, the botanical industry is one. And so I really wanted to dig deep into that to see, okay, how do these values and qualities of respect show up? What conditions help them show up? Is it all greenwashing that we can change the world through our purchases or are there some ways that we can? So, so those are the questions. And, and, and why now? Because it took me this long to finish it. <laughs> Do you say that the botanical industry is, is better suited to, to apply capitalism in that way because people are already thinking more holistically it's, it, because there is this sort of health aspect to it? Or, or are there other reasons beyond that? Well, part, so partly that, right? Because it's about health and it's about wellness, but so much of the industry is about my wellness. Like if I take this product, I'll be healthy and well. And so this doesn't exactly answer that question, but what I want to do is turn that around and say, our wellness is only as good as the whole supply chain, like all the people and the environment along the way. But I think the botanical... So, I think the botanical industry is particularly well suited because if you're in the industry, if you're making money on wellness, it's important to walk your talk and really be creating wellness in the world. But also because in traditional Western herbalism or Ayurveda, you know, all these traditional healing systems of the world, they're based on the idea that in nature is healing. There's the healing power of nature. And so that sense of respect of interacting with the earth as something living is built into the value system. So whereas like our food, like our clothing, I don't have a lot of values around my clothes. So I think that 
Yeah. And, and I mean, very similar to, to ways that people think about sustainability in, in food supply chains, whether it's meat or dairy or veggies or anything, right? Like uh, when we talk about sustainability, who are we, whose sustainability are we talking about? Um, you know, the health of the animal or the, the, the veggie being grown organically, but, but how are people harvesting those, those plants or taking care of those animals or slaughtering the animals treated? How are they paid? Right. It's, it's very easy for people to forget all of that whole side of the supply chain. And I think one of the things that, that stood out to me in your book was it felt like you uncovered this contradiction in the industry there where, where on the one hand we, we want, or I mean, not, I say we sort of broadly, but, but the goal seems to be to get more people to, to draw on natural medicines to, to heal themselves. But on the other hand, with scale comes, comes greater risk, comes more exploitation, comes less uh, traceability and visibility into the supply chains. So how, where is the balance or is there a balance? Is there potential for finding a balance there between getting more people to use more herbal medicine, but also making sure that the supply chains can scale up uh, sustainably, fully sustainably? Right. I mean, that's the, the, the question is growth and scale. And, and I don't know. I know, you know, someone like Sebastian Pohl, who co-founded Puck Up Tea, which is a UK-based tea company, he says that, you know, when we scale up, because we're sort of, you know, required certified organic, our wild plants are certified fair wild, we are creating more goodness because of the rigor. But there are challenges with scaling up, right? I'm sure, as you're finding, because if suddenly you need a ton more of elderberries right now, you got to get that elderberry from somewhere and maybe, you know, do you compromise your values or not? So. I feel like it's a tension that I don't maybe maybe how I think of it, I feel like there are certain ways that developing more regional networks, especially with herbal medicine where a fair number of herbs can be grown regionally and and then sourcing the ones internationally from you know the the comparable companies to like what you're doing with spices but in the herb industry you know there are companies that are really investing in sourcing but i don't have an answer you know that's a tricky one it's, no it's really hard i mean i i it's uh i think there's a wendell barrier there's some some quote it takes a year to grow a carrot and 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 you know if we're talking to a a, a big wholesale customer or somebody who wants a large quantity that we may not have it's always a conversation to say like you know, maybe this, maybe this product we can scale up. We're not buying everything the farmer grows, uh, but, but certain products we just can't. And, and, and there is often economic pressure, financial pressure. We could make more money if we moved away from those values or bought them from some kind of commodity trader, which we obviously we could do. Um, and, and it's definitely, especially as a, a young business, as an early stage business where you just got to get revenue in the door, um, it's, it's very, it's very difficult, frankly, to, to turn those opportunities down. Um, and, and I, I wonder, I mean, especially, especially when we talk about medicinal herbs, which so often are either wild harvested or grown under very specific conditions that make scaling up even harder than, than, uh, kind of traditional other agricultural products would be. Um, there's just a, a lot of pressure to navigate there. And roots that take, you know, two, three, four, five years and then, to, so we're doing a short video right now on rhodiola because it's threatened in the wild. And so there are two different conf, sort of 
co-ops of farmers, one in Alberta and one in Alaska that are trying to get farmers to grow it. But it's really hard, right, to find farmers willing to spend three, four, five years working on a crop before you get the revenue and the harvest. So, yeah. Um, and, and what about the, the sort of consumer education side of it that, I mean, reading your book, I know a fair amount about about plants and, and herbs, but I, I didn't I had never heard of or was only vaguely familiar with most of the plants that most of the names that that you were talking about. How like, is there is there a gap there is are there certain plants that that have gotten sort of gotten famous uh, for certain reasons? How how have people been educated about this topic and how is that changing? So there's sort of circles, you know, there's the herb, people who study herbal medicine, especially in the United States, you know, it's international, but there's a real grassroots movement. There's so many online classes and people studying. So there is that kind of deeper knowledge about the plants themselves. There's not such deep knowledge about the industry. And then beyond that, you know, I think it's, it's whatever's, popular right right now a lot of the immune things because they're in the news and then that's how people learn about them but they're not they don't really learn about again they learn what they'll do for us not where they grow and in a lot of companies also the people involved in purchasing because they buy through various layers they don't know the plants either necessarily so there's a lot I feel like there's a lot what I'm trying to do in the book and at the Sustainable Herbs Program is really educate about how complex it is. I mean, it's simple, right? You have to get herbs from overseas, you know, from one, you have to keep them clean. And <laughs> it, all this sounds, it sounds simple. And, and then you actually think about what, what's involved. Yeah. But it's so complicated. And because I think the first step is seeing that system and understanding how complicated it is. Because in the media, there's a lot of black and white herbs are all good or herbs are all bad. And there's not, there's a huge range in companies and quality and investment in, in addressing issues around living income and quality of the soil and all those things. So I think education is a huge part. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb Credit. Heritage Radio Network listeners can learn more about the power of community capital by visiting honeycombcredit.com HRN. We all know that food businesses like yours are the backbone of your community. You make your neighborhood a more delicious place to be and your customers are hungry for more. Food businesses across the country are working with Honeycomb to open new locations, buy equipment and grow. You too can unlock fair growth capital by allowing your community to invest directly into your business. A crowdfunded loan from Honeycomb deepens your customer relationships and gives them a whole new way to engage with your business. You'll also get access to thousands of local investors in the Honeycomb network who are passionate about seeing food businesses succeed. Honeycomb is the community bank of the 21st century. Fair rates, flexible terms, and no prepayment penalties. Honeycomb has proven to be an invaluable growth tool for all kinds of businesses, from James Beard-nominated restaurants and upstart food trucks to organic farms and award-winning breweries. Best of all, with Honeycomb, you're paying back your neighbors, not big banks. 
To learn more about how Honeycomb Credit can help grow your business while building vibrant, financially empowered neighborhoods, visit honeycombcredit.com HRN. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And my guest this week is Anne Armbrecht, and we're talking about her new book, The Business of Botanicals. Um, would you, Anne, would you uh, kind of walk me through a typical supply chain for herbs? What, maybe pick an example, but how does it work from, from the grower or the, the harvester all the way to the, to the end consumer? Sure. I'll pick, say, Tulsi from a Fairwild, Fair for Life certified project we visited in South India. So the Tulsi was grown by smallholders. So each farmer would own about an acre, hectare or two of land. They'd grow Tulsi. And the idea is it's in a mixed crop, not mixed, mixed crop, but there's, it's not just a big monocrop that they're really in this project caring for the soil. But so those farmers then would bring the harvested Tulsi leaves to this kind of central facility, which is just like an open air area with places to pick the leaves off the stems and then spread it out on drying racks. And they might or know that maybe that's owned by a co-op. And then that co-op go, goes to uh, processing, like pro, what's called primary processing facility. This one's in Bangalore, outside of Bangalore. And that is a company that has relationships with lots of collectors and farmers and they then do another level of cleaning up and some testing and they package it do like metal testing and then that is shipped in this and then this is probably shipped to like germany where there's more because the facilities can be more controlled in general those involved in sourcing, try and get it out of the source company country as quickly as possible to where it can be stored in better climate controlled conditions. And, and then maybe it's chopped to a finer grade. And then it would be sold in this, it would be passed on to a finished processing company. Or in this case, they would package it into tea bags and then it would go to the brand. So we see that finished the company at the end, but they're the brand that it's each step along the way is handled by different companies, people. And that's, that's kind of a, a best case scenario, right? That's, that's fair for life, yeah. held to a very high standard internally and externally. What would a, what would, what would the other extreme be? What would a, a low end or a, a poorly supervised yeah. supply chain look like? So some other ones I saw in South India, people collect, and, you know, often when people say wild collection, you imagine like pristine forests. But this was when I was driving on the road, the guy I was driving with pointed out to the dusty fields by the road. And that's where this was wild collected, just, you know, just by any roadside. And then that was brought to uh, another area, what place, central place where it's weighed and the collector is paid. And then it's kind of stored in sacks in that place. And then it's sold to another trader who maybe then auctions off or has relationships with another step up of middlemen. So it's kind of layers. And then that middleman maybe would sell it to an ingredient supplier who would then sell it to a contract manufacturer who would then eventually 
the brand would sell the finish, like a capsule maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people ask me about supply chains for spices, like the, the bottle of garlic powder that you buy at Trader Joe's for 99 cents or something. It's, I, I you wouldn't, you don't even want to know. I mean, I'm sure that in, in the spice industry, there are companies mm-hmm. who specialize mm-hmm. in buying mm-hmm. literally the dust vacuumed up off the floor, off of the ground, out of the grinding room of a bigger company, sterilizing it, packaging and selling it. Dollar store spices are, are literally swept up off the floor. Um, I, I'm sure there must be there must be analogs in in medicinal herbs, but um, how how how, do, how does a customer or how does a, a, a consumer of those herbs learn about the supply chain or, or make informed decisions about where their products might be coming from? Read my book. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> um, so so this doesn't directly answer that, but one of the things that I found the most powerful about studying herbal medicine was how empowering it was. You know, I sort of learning how to make remedies myself with plants I could grow. One of the things that is the most striking about the botanical industry as a consumer is how disempowering it is, right? In a way, buy this product. So what I'm trying to think about is encouraging people to, you know, everybody says, I don't have time, I don't have time, but to pick a couple of, like if you're interested in echinacea or elderberry, Dig in and find a company that you like and find out what their practices are. You know, ask where, how do you, what's your relationship with the source? And like, because I feel like some of that investment is the healing part of the, you know, because part of, part of what I think people are drawn to herbal medicine for is connection, you know, connection with nature, with something that is part of being what's good. And so I feel like if we invest more as in our purchasing, maybe that can bring some of that empowerment. Could could you talk a little more about that? Is there an example or a story or an individual that you met in, in researching the book who, uh, who, who had experienced some of that impact on their own lives or, or ways that, 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 approach that's that approach to sustainable sourcing actually uh, they were able to see some of those improvements or or is it still are we still too early in this process has it not been around long enough to to really have seen meaningful impact at origin in origin yeah you mean oh i definitely think there i mean the the projects we visited with pucka were you know this one i'm thinking that fair for life tulsi one the 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 person who was in charge of the drying rack, I mean, he would tell a story about how he had been quite sick before. He used to work in a um, more agro-industrial setting. And now working with Tulsi, he said there was such a difference with his lungs and he no longer was sick as much. And he equated that it, to the not being with pesticides and that it was organic. Is, is that what you mean? That kind of thing? Yeah. Or, or just other ways that, you know, you know, I struggle with, in, in the spice trade, and one of the things that, that we're working on Burlap and Barrel is, is to make that connection clearer for the consumer. You know, you buy, you buy a high quality product at a supermarket, on a website, wherever it might be. It's, it feels so far away from, from the farm, from the person who, who produced, who grew, who dried that product at origin. Um, and one of the things that we struggle with in our marketing is, 
is how to tell that story in a in a compelling way, how to make it clear to a to a customer that that this isn't this this sort of impact. I, I'm, our listeners can't see me, but I'm, I'm using air quotes. This impact it's not hypothetical. It it's it's a direct supply chain. It's real. More money is more money. Um, but but when you talk about something. Uh, when you talk about something with such a complex supply chain, especially when you're dealing with an ingredient that may be a little more esoteric or people don't have the same kind of connection to that they have to cinnamon or black pepper, um, how do you how do you draw that line? Is there a line to be drawn at all? Um, and and what does what does success? I mean, this is a big question. <laughs> I don't know if there's an answer to this, but what does success look like? What is what does a truly sustainable supply chain mean for for producers at Origin? So I think part of it is back to that consumer education piece that we want simple answers and we want to know that we're making a difference when in fact it's really hard to make a difference because there are like historical structural inequities that are deep, deep, deep. And one company is not going to be able to change that. So I think that's one thing is our expectations. And that's what I'm trying to talk about in the book is really, it's complicated. So that's one thing. And then another all the companies, everyone I talk to, and you go to those big supply, you know, Expo West and things, everybody's talking about consumer marketing. If consumers care about sustainability, then companies are going to pay attention to sustainability. I mean, that's not the right reason to do it, right? But consumers have incredible power in these in the com- conversation that companies have. And so, and the more companies that are paying attention to what's happening at the origin, the more likely more money is going to get down there. So it's really hard, you know, for a company like Paca Tea and Paca Herbs can reach a, a number of farmers. You can reach a number of farmers. If there were a lot bigger, more companies could be reached more. So not really answering your question, except. <laughs> Maybe there isn't an answer. Sorry, go ahead. But, but what, so it's also, you know, where change happens. It happens both on that big scale, but often through one-on-one encounters, right? And like I'm sure the encounters you have with some of the farmers, that makes a difference. In who knows in what ways it makes a difference. And seeing like in the 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 wild harvesters I traveled around, I you know walked around with in eastern Poland, it makes a difference to them that they are part of They get a little bit more money. They're connected with an international supply chain that's different than just selling in an anonymous way. You know, another project we visited in India, they specifically said the difference it makes. You know, I'm sure they want bigger differences, but I think change has to start somewhere. And so that was one of the places that I ended up in this book was thinking, okay, when those one-in-one encounters, that that's a place for change to begin. Yeah, I, I mean, just to touch on something you, you said a little earlier, I'm, I'm that connection between consumers demanding sustainability and and companies delivering it. I'm I'm so skeptical of that uh, of that framing of the situation. I've been I've been studying spice supply chains, you know, a hundred hours a week for five years, and and. I don't understand the complexity of it. How can I possibly expect a consumer, you know, popping onto our website or, you know, buying spices at the supermarket to, 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 
to be able to, to drive a conversation towards sustainability, because I don't know what sustainability looks like. And maybe I'm, I'm too deep in, right? Like this, this is always what happens. The, the, the closer in you get, the more complicated it gets. But, um, but I don't know, are there, are there, to me, it feels a little bit like a cop-out for a company to say, oh, consumers demand responsibility, demand sustainability. And so we then have to deliver because consumers don't know often what they're demanding when they demand that. And, and at some point, a company has to, like Pucka and, and various others that you talk about in the book, have to stand up and say, this is what sustainability means. And we're going to deliver it, whether you, the consumer, understand that or care about it or not. Um, is it, did you see other sources of pressure to push companies in that direction beyond the consumer? Or how does that, how does that change take place in other ways that, that consumers might be less um, less directly involved in. Does that, uh, am I making sense? Yeah. So I mean, well, two things. One, I think to answer the first part of your question, I think in the botanical industry on a very fundamental level, what consumers can understand or ask is to ask a company, do you know where your herbs are from? Because traceability is a hugely important. And if so, that was like one of the big distinctions I found, both in terms of quality, but any potential investment in the source, you know, communities was whether a company bought on the open market or bought through, you know, suppliers who had relationships down the road. So having that relationship was a big distinction. So that's like a basic, simple thing consumers could know. The second thing, wait, um, Remind me the second. Oh, well, just other sources of pressure, other ways that companies are oh, right. are pushed to to consider sustainability more concretely. I guess. I mean, you know, it's shocking, right? The lack of that that is even a conversation. But to me, it seems like climate change, or that we have probably now, like what the UN says, fifty. Um, cycles of soil, you know, harvest left and companies with forward thinking heads see that and, you know, are coming up with science-based targets, but you can count on this one hand that I'm holding up for you, how many companies are thinking that way. I was talking to someone who is an ingredient supplier and he said, you know, you think, you would think the fact that we've been told we only have 50 food harvest left would be big news but it's not, we just keep going. And he also was saying that the number of, so he's an ingredient supplier, so they sell to contract manufacturers. The number of companies really asking concrete questions about their sustainability practices is shockingly low. And the ones that do ask, they don't really want the details to know that kind of rigor of questions that that they are doing as a company, you know, in their relationships with their buyers. So, I don't, you know, the head of a um, one of the trade associations, he was on a webinar I had last fall, and he he was said that COVID he thinks is a is a stress test for the industry around what's coming down the pike with climate change, and he has written in message, you know, announcements to his members that he's really going to be taking a lead and bringing these conversations forward. Um, that's what we're trying to do at Sustainable Herbs Program, you know, show that it's more than just consumer driven. It's like a responsibility to. 
Are there are there other resources that you would recommend um, for people to to check out books or websites or uh, sources for news or information? Um, yeah, but before that, so it's what we're trying to make the case at the Sustainable Herbs Program is that for these companies that depend on raw materials that are grown from the earth and where everybody's been impacted by climate change, the long-term business, you know, for as a long-term business case, they need to invest in the source communities. And because another huge thing in the botanical industry is migration from rural to urban areas and because it's really hard work and they're not getting, people aren't getting paid enough. And so what we're trying to do is really show these are these factors that are impacting the viability of your business. Um, so the sustainable herbs program is one which has a lot of information, both for consumers and also for companies. And one thing that's especially interesting is this series of webinars we've been having. What I've been trying to do is bring in a lot of different voices from companies, producer groups around the world. So we've had people from Croatia and Peru and India and Nepal, because quite often it's people in the West having these conversations amongst themselves. And so really trying to diversify who we're hearing from. United Plant Savers is more U.S. based around wild plants, but that's another source of information. Yeah. Um, let's do a, a couple of fun rapid fire questions before we wrap up. Um, uh, maybe let's start with uh, what's what's your I don't know, is favorite the right word? What's your favorite herb or what's what's the medicinal herb that you that you find yourself most drawn to? Two, motherwort and uh, black cohosh. What, what do they what do they do or tell tell us a little bit about the story behind it? Yeah. So motherwort's a member of the mint family, but it so it's weedy and spreads everywhere, but it's quite bitter and it's kind of heart of the mother lion. And so I think of it as both I take I, I tincture it myself and I grow it. And I take it as a bitter, but also for like courage as a mother to stand by my kids. <laughs> and then black cohosh, because I'm from West Virginia and it's a beautiful, I mean, it can grow in gardens, but it's that kind of white fairy wand and it, it's native habitat is Appalachian forests. And so it's beautiful, you know, sort of misty feel, old woods. Yeah, I think you have a story in, in the book about your mother taking you to, to see if, is, am I remembering that correctly? Oh, that yeah, that was Trillium. Oh, a different, different one, but uh, yeah. sort of similar yeah. uh, geography. Um, what about a, an amazing meal that you ate over the course of your, your travel and research for the book, uh, a meal that really stands out to you? We had amazing, so when we traveled with Pukka, um, which was remarkable that they let us join them, cameras rolling without editing that, but they have a farm. Their partners in South India have a farm in the Western Ghats. And the food there was amazing. Really good South Indian food. We were you know, eating on the floor with on a leaf and it was the best food there. Yeah, the, the amount of ghee, uh, as not just as a cooking medium, but also as a condiment and a sauce. And I, I, I'm just always, um, especially when it's sort of homemade or, or home fermented and it's really funky, uh, uh, anyway, it's, oh, it's I don't remember the key so much. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this, I, this, those, those meals I had were 
in Maharashtra, so maybe not quite as far south. Maybe there was more coconut oil where you were and less dairy, but um, yeah. but but right, those ingredients sort of in their natural habitat, I guess, people eating them the way that they want to eat them rather than the, the version that we get that's refracted through the supply chain and, I don't know, a, a U.S.-oriented uh, audience. Um, uh, what about a, a kind of a, a memorable meal growing up? What were some of your favorite things to eat? What, what were, what were typical meals that you had at home as a kid? That's right. This is a food show. It's quite <laughs> much food. <laughs> I talk a little bit about that in the book because eating was not like meal preparation was not a big focus of my childhood. Um, we had trailer burgers, which was hamburgers with like all these different layers of things. And my mom had this, there were five kids and my mom had a, a ratty little sheet of paper that she kept track of whether we wanted lettuce, eggs, tomatoes, cheese. I can't remember what else. Those were on the trailer burgers. What was your, what was your choice? I was a very picky eater. So I was limited, I think maybe just the burger. (laughs) Um, Well, Anne, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Your book is the business of botanicals. It's, it's fascinating and really beautifully written. I highly, highly recommend it. Where can people find a copy? What what do you recommend uh, that they do to, to to get started reading it? Um, you can find it wherever you get books. The best place is your local bookstore. Bookshelf is Bookshelf the independent bookseller? I think it's book is it, it bookshop.org. Bookshop, bookshop, yeah. bookshop, yeah. And then there's you know Amazon or places like that as I, well. I did the audio book. That's, mm-hmm. that's been my primary uh, method of reading recently. So I, it was pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's always a little funny, like who the, who the uh, narrator is, but, but your narrator did a really great job. Oh, good. I can't listen. It's hard <laughs> to listen. <laughs> um, and uh, where can, where can our listeners find you, follow your work, follow you on social media? What's the website for the sustainable herbs program? Yeah. The sustainable herbs program sustainableearthprogram.org and I have a website annarmbrecht.com that I don't update very much <laughs> right. sounds good well thanks to our amazing sound and oh I'm sorry you can as always contact us I always forget this part you can contact us by email whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org you can find us on social media at whyfoodpodcast thanks to our amazing sound engineer uh, Armin Spengen, thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song. And most of all, Anne, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a great conversation. And and uh, everybody, go out and, and pick up the book. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.